Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. In this program, I'm talking to Anne O'Neill Henry about popular literature in 19th century France. What we think of now as the classics weren't necessarily always the most widely read books of their own day. Some of these authors that we, you know, that we look at today, Stendhal, Musset, they to us now represent the 19th century, but they were not among the most read authors of the time period. And I think that to really understand the tastes of the 19th century rather than read these sort of more elite authors who are positioning themselves for a you know, specifically well-educated upper-class audience, it's fascinating to read the authors that were actually the most read. Anne is an assistant professor of French at Georgetown University. Her book, Mastering the Marketplace, looks at the burgeoning dynamic market for books that sprang up in early 19th century France. It was, she argues one of the birthplaces of our own modern mass media culture. It's certainly not hard to recognise features that were new then and are still with us today. Celebrity authors, runaway bestsellers, commercially minded publishers, copycat trends and debates about high culture versus low. The critic, Sainte-Beuve, was so concerned about the rise of popular literature and its possible corrupting influence, that in 1839 he denounced it all as industrial literature, in other words, mass-produced with no regard for its artistic or moral quality. The kind of literature Saint-Beuve objected to was written by two of the writers Anne looks at, the now largely forgotten Paul de Kock, who had a lucrative career as a popular novelist that spanned half a century, despite being scorned by many of his fellow writers, and Eugène Sue, whose serialised novel The Mysteries of Paris was an international sensation in the 1840s, but was recently described as the most important work of 19th century French fiction that is virtually unread in English. We'll return to that novel in the podcast and also hear about a new humorous non-fiction genre called Physiologies that tried to describe all the social types of Paris. But I began by asking Anne to tell me why the mass market for books was able to really take off in France in the 1830s. Oh, and I should add that Anne's dog makes a brief unscheduled appearance later on in our conversation. There's kind of a confluence of things happening around this period, the the 20s, the 30s, the 40s. So a number of things happening. Um, First, sort of 
on a technical level, there are industrial changes um, in print technology that make it easier to make and circulate books on the kind of physical level. There are changing um, literacy rates. Not It's not directly linked to, but in part because of, um, of laws about education. For example, laws requiring each commune to have an elementary school. So they're just more readers at this point as well. There are, you know, innovations in book selling techniques. Um, there are traveling booksellers, but it also uh, lending libraries and what they call cabinet de lecture, where you can go and, and read a book for a small subscription fee. The, uh, another big uh, change is the serial novel. So first of all, there are changes in the around 1836, where subscription rates are lowered and um, newspaper publishers start using um, advertisements to uh, fund their papers. And so, for example, you have someone like uh, Émile de Girardin, who in 1836 publishes a paper that is no longer an 80 franc uh, per year subscription rate, but rather 40 franc per year. So this is a big drop. It still doesn't mean that the um, newspaper is accessible to everyone, but it certainly opens up the readership. And then Shortly thereafter, serial novels begin to be published in those same papers. So there's the accessibility to literature changes. And then also um, there's a major change sort of in the figure of the publisher or editor, as they as they call it, um, sort of the birth of the publisher as we as we know it now, you know, the one who secures the contract for the author. Um, there are a lot of debates going on over um, literary property rights. This is something that's kind of coming out then. Also the format in which books are sold. Um, so they kind of, the format gets increasingly smaller. The book becomes less of, an, of a luxury item. Of course, luxury editions of books still exist, but there are just more formats in which the book can be um, bought and sold. So, um, so basically literature becomes more accessible to a wider audience and that wider audience has rising literary, uh, excuse me, literacy rates. Who would you say, I mean, again, this is a rather big question, but who would you say were the tastemakers? Who, who, was it these editeurs, these, these sort of new breed of publishers who were determining what books were actually put in front of the, the reading public? It's really a moment of flux where it's the editeur, but also the authors themselves. And everyone is kind of testing out ideas and there are trends and some of the trends are fleeting and some some trends are coming from, you know, from other countries. For example, uh, I talk in the book about Eugène Sue and his um, and his little foray into um, maritime literature. Mm. So there's there's some people, uh, some authors in France who are capitalizing on trends that are happening elsewhere. Um, he's he's very interested in copying uh, James Fenmore Cooper. So yeah, I mean, I would I would say it's it's both. Honestly, I think for someone for some to give you the example of Paul de Kock, for example, Paul de Kock starts off his career self publishing because none of the these editors are interested. Mm. And then he publishes a few texts that actually get off the ground and a publisher who initially rejected him then locks him into a 10-year contract. So it's sort of this moment of testing out the marketplace because I think people don't necessarily know what's going to happen, but also they themselves are, are the actors in the, same, in the same marketplace. Would it be true, Anne, to say that this is really the first period when it is a a viable ambition for someone to be a professional writer who lives in a literary milieu and makes most of their living from selling books to, to a reading public. 
I believe that it's a fair argument. Um, there, there are some major changes that happen after um, after the revolution. For example, the publishers for the, themselves, for example, are no longer in sorts of like guilds. Really, someone who's not coming from an elite background, who's not you know a commissioned writer, is able on their own to to go out and become a professional writer. And and I think this is why you see, for example, authors who have pretensions to be you know more hot, quote unquote highbrow find themselves doing more commercial writing to sort of uh, subsidize the type of writing that they'd like to be doing. This is particularly pertinent in the case of Budzak, um, as I discuss in my book. But absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, you have someone like Paul de Kock who actually is quite well off and is able to maintain um, a very nice lifestyle just from writing these books, which aren't like enormous bestsellers, but are consistently well sold. It's not only just that um, authors are able to sustain themselves through writing, but that, a, you know, a sort of new class of, of bourgeois writer is, is able to do so. And I thought one of the, the most fascinating things um, from your book was reading about how authors didn't confine themselves to a single genre. There was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of fluidity. There was trying something, seeing if it worked. Then perhaps public taste would shift and they would try something else. They might hit the jackpot, but this experimentation might go on all the way through a career. And I suppose Eugène Sue is quite a good example. You write a chapter about him and how he, before he had the huge success with Le, uh, Les Mystères de Paris, he had lots of um, experiments in other genres. Sue is almost universally known for Les Mystères de Paris. And because it was such an enormous bestseller, just absolutely um, becomes emblematic of the uh, roman feuilleton of commercial literature in the 19th century. And yet he's somebody who really wrote in a lot of different genres throughout his career. And he really was kind of um, going along with what was popular at the time. So starting out with maritime or popular, or excuse me, or pirate fiction. Um, as I mentioned, he's, he's really trying to kind of capitalize on Cooper uh, in that case. And then he seems to kind of do that genre until it runs its course. You know, he has several successful, commercially successful maritime novels, and then it kind of peters out. And so then he sort of has this foray into the historical novel with a little bit less success. And then he turns to the roman de mœurs, and he has a number of uh, well-received um, uh, novels, in notably uh, Mathilde, which uh, people don't usually read, but is actually an enormous serialized uh, novel before Les Mystères de Paris. And then he writes uh, Les Mystères de Paris, which is uh, sort of this, you know, social novel. And yes, it's an absolutely enormous bestseller. But to hear critics talk about it sometimes, it seems like, you know, the social novel uh, Les Mystères de Paris came out of nowhere, where in fact, he had been testing out the market with all these different genres to varying degrees of success. I know you write it about his career before that, and you don't want to focus on, on Les Mystères particularly. But I just thought... I've never read this book. I was looking at the Penguin introduction to it this morning and, and it yeah. describes it as the most important work of 19th century French fiction that's virtually unknown in English. And I just wondered, could you give listeners a sense of just how successful this book was? Give a sense of what, it, what, what it's like and maybe, maybe suggest why it's, you know, compared to Les Miserables, which, to which I guess it could be in some, in some ways compared. Why, sure. is it, why is it so little known in English? 
Well, okay. So here, first of all, what, what is Les Mystères de Paris? So Les Mystères de Paris is this novel. It's about the sort of underbelly of Paris. It's serialized between 1842 and 1843 in a newspaper called the Journal des Débats. And it's the story of a prince in disguise, Rodolphe. He basically disguises himself and goes into the underbelly of Paris to try and um, figure out a number of mysteries. And he has, you know, a number of dangerous encounters and he's adept at uh, disguising himself and using the slang of the people. And yet at the same time, it has this social justice message of helping the poor and um, aiding those, and, you know, and, and not all criminals are bad. And it's just a, a very elaborate uh, study of the underbelly of Paris. And at the same time, it's, you know, written in this very engaging style. Every chapter ends with a cliffhanger. It's, you know, got these very elaborately described characters. So that's a little bit of what it is. And then what the novel became was this just enormous phenomenon. So people got absolutely hooked on the um, installments. There would be, everyone ended with a little, it said, um, uh, la suite à demain. And it sort of, um, you know, everybody is, is hooked on to seeing what's going to come next. And, and people really think, I think that it was adapted so perfectly to the serial genre. And so you had readers waiting outside to, you know, to read it as soon as the, the next issue of the newspaper was published. There were organized readings for those who couldn't uh, pay for the subscription um, or those who couldn't read. Um, you know, it was just consumed by an absolutely enormous number of people, more, more so than, than any other text at the time. And then it was, it was published uh, in volumes. Those were huge bestsellers as well. And at the same time, it kind of sparks uh, this global phenomenon. So you have the publication of Les Mystères de Paris, but then you also have, um, you know, the mysteries of New Orleans, the mysteries of Milan, the mysteries of New York. It's sort of the, its popularity turns into the popularity of, of other novels. There are, of course, a number of translations of the novel, adaptations of the novel, plagiarized versions of the novel, you know, the real Mystère de Paris or the almanac of the Mystère de Paris, uh, people who are just capitalizing on the genre themselves. So, so really, it's not only just that it was an enormous bestseller in Paris, in France, but kind of uh, it, it spiraled into this big global phenomenon. And why do you think then that it's so little read in English. Is it because there hasn't been a good translation, a good modern translation until quite recently? Well, that, that could be part of it. Yes, there, there is. There has been this absolutely wonderful uh, translation that's just come out in the past couple of years. Um, but I do think part of the reason that it hasn't been as well read is, number one, um, you know, it became emblematic of this idea of industrial literature from that period. And that's a term that um, I use that comes from Sainte-Beuve, uh, who writes a very disparaging um, essay called De la littérature industrielle. So, you know, it, it's, it's emblematic of a type of literature that I think people become less interested in for a long time. You know, it's, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not Balzac, it's not Flaubert. Um, yeah. And it's also incredibly long. It's, it's you know, 2,000 pages. That could have something to do with it as well. You know, it, I struggle in the book a lot to avoid using terms like good and bad. And instead, of, instead, I try to say sort of more consciously literary and more plot-driven. It's definitely plot-driven. I mean, it's... Um, it's a sprawling plot involving enormous numbers of characters. Everyone's connected. 
it's not a very it's not very literary language for example there's not a lot of tropes there are not a lot of um there are character descriptions but it's a very superficial um and so it, you know it's it just one could juxtapose it with Flaubert with Balzac with other writers of the period and find it to be perhaps a less appealing style but what I appreciate about it is that its popularity shows what the tastes of the public were at that time. So um, it's actually, there's been a revival in um, in sort of the field of 19th century studies in the past several years. People have been actually really interested in um, working on it from a critical scholarly uh, perspective. But it's true that um, for sort of the more general public, there hasn't been really access to it for a while. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that this uh, that this new translation will make it, uh, uh, you will make everyone read Eugène Sue because I think it's great. It's a great story. Now, you mentioned the genre of um, physiology at, mm-hmm. at the beginning, Anne. And because, as I say, I studied French a long time ago, I focused on what you might call great books of the canon, and I didn't come across this uh, nonfiction genre until I read your book. And I was fascinated by it, by how it seemed to tap into the the zeitgeist, by how novelists would would write for it, by how popular it was, and by how you could sort of see all these all these sort of lines of filiation with with things which would come later, like like the the comédie humaine. Can you say, for someone who hasn't, you know, who like me has not come across the physiology, can you say what this genre was was trying to do and how it sort of taps into to wider currents? Sure. So um, it's the, the physiology is a series of short-ish texts that are published in the 1830s and 40s, but there's a particular boom between like 1840 and 1842. They're not all published by the same publishing house, but a large percentage of them are published by um, a publishing house called uh, Maison Aubert. You know, there a number of critics have uh, have have talked about the different the different goals of these texts, but to, to break it down, it is a sort of pseudo-scientific study of an urban phenomenon. So there, I mean, there's so many of them. There's the physiologie du flaneur, which is probably the most famous one. There's the physiologie de la grisette, which is effectively a, a young working class woman. The physiologie de l'homme marié, de l'employé, du cigare. <laughs> and he, there's, you can find a physiologie on almost anything. De l'homme bourgeois. I guess the one which which I had heard of and which people may have heard of is the Physiologie du Goût, which is by Bria Savard. Right, and exactly. That, that was the very first one, wasn't it? Well, so that is what people often think of, either that or or Balzac himself a little bit later. I think uh, Physiologie du Goût is from 1826, and shortly afterwards, I believe in 29, Balzac writes Physiologie du Mariage. Both of those um, you can kind of think of as sort of pre physiologies. Um, okay. They're both, um, I'm, I'm not actually, uh, I haven't studied in depth the Bria Savarin one, um, but people often think that that's where they get the name for the series or from, from Balzac. But these end up becoming a very specific, almost fixed format text, which are often very humorous. They are sort of studies of the whatever subject they're they're looking at. So to give you an example, the physiologie de la grisette, you know, it's the study of, first of all, what what is la grisette? And then they'll often have a kind of pseudo 
philosophical study of what it means to be a young working class woman. And then they'll have, you know, what are what are her tastes? Where does she come from? Uh, what kind of food does she like to eat? What is her typical day like? And they're all put in these sort of short chapters. And they're they're highly illustrated as well, usually with caricatures or or sketches. And so they on the one hand, they do this sort of little study of the of the um, of the subject in a kind of uh, pseudo sociological pseudo scientific tone as though they were you know breaking down each part of this um, of this phenomenon or figure but uh, seen kind of collectively as part of a series um, people often say that um, this phenomenon shows the interest in pe- readers of the period in kind of understanding the social codes of their urban environment. So this is also a period when um, there's been a sort of big boom in population in in Paris, and you know, with of course all of the political tumults of the you know late 18th and early 19th century, uh, people kind of look to this, or scholars have looked to this movement as kind of a a way for readers of the period to understand in a digestible format the sort of urban phenomena that surround them. Um, so this was, it was extremely popular. People, unknown writers and also well-known writers, like for example, Bazak, were contributing to these, Paul de Coq as well. Um, and so the ones by the Maison Aubert um, were especially popular and they would, um, you know, there were there was a big advertising campaign and, um, and just the number of physiologies multiplied to the point that, um, and I study this in the book, there's, there's even a physiologie des physiologies mm. that does a breakdown of the study of the phenomenon. <laughs> and they're, they're also very funny. <laughs> well, I, I, lo- I love that one that you just mentioned because it describes going into a bookstore and and wondering where all the classics were and where all the sort right. of greats of literature were. And then he says they're sleeping at the back, um, waiting right. for awaiting resurrection. And meanwhile, the bookstore is piled high with his multicoloured physiology. Uh, right. So it wasn't just a quirky minor phenomenon. It, was, it, it really was a, was, a, was a major publishing success. It was a major publishing success. I think that's exactly the right way to put it, because not only, um, you know, did it tap into the tastes of the of the readers, but it kind of banked on the phenomenon that it was incredibly popular and that they were selling so many copies. And so once you kind of start reading through the whole series, you start to pick up on references to the popularity of them. And then often the publishing house, Maison Aubert, is is referenced within the text. So it's like auto-referential, some some marketing within the text. And yes, they're just um, they're just everywhere. So it's not too fanciful to see Balzac, who had, as you say, written some of these physiology as tapping into a same curiosity in his reading public for the typologies of the modern city? So I would say, yes. Yeah, so yes, Balzac, on the one hand, is contributing to, he's, he's actually, you know, writing physiology and then installments in the other forms of what is called panoramic literature. So that's a term that was coined by Walter Benjamin to refer to both the physiology and then also these kind of larger volumes of short typological studies that came out around the same time. Um, so Balzac is absolutely writing, it's contributing to those, sometimes anonymously, and then sometimes signing his own name, for the most part, to just to make money. Um, but then he's also, in his, in his novels that will form part of the Comédie Humaine, incorporating varying types of these typologies. So you, you might have portions of these novels that we would sort of now consider canonical that have, you know, a direct copy and paste from a 
physiology that he's written elsewhere. But then he will also have sort of um, typological studies that either, you know, imitate or draw on the sort of um, exact style of the physiology or others that he then kind of, um, you know, he renders more quote unquote literary by, you know, using metaphors, analogies, you know, other literary tropes. And so I'm interested in the book in how Balzac is kind of this liminal figure where he's both, you know, dipping his toes into the, you know, highly commercialized uh, writing scene, but then also dis being disdainful of it elsewhere and yet sort of adapting it and modifying it in his novels. A word I wrote down in, in block capitals as I was reading the Balzac chapter was self-positioning, I think I think you say. Do you think do you think for writers it became harder to self-position as the century went on? Was everything still to play for in Balzac's day and was that more fixed by the end of the century? Um, that's a great question. I think hmm, let me think about that. I think that there's still a lot of self-positioning at the end of the century. And I think that, um, you know, you see that with Flaubert, for example, who's writing later, who says, and I, you know, I quote it from the book, and he, he, he in a number of times, uses the name Paul de Kock as, as, you know, placeholder for bad literature and describes himself as wanting to do something different. So he's, he's a little bit later in the century. But, um, but there's certainly, you know, there's certainly straw men later in the century that other writers are positioning themselves against as well. But I do think that the literary marketplace as such and the ideas of high and low become more concretized as the century goes on and certainly into the 20 into the, in the twentieth century and as I'm kind of trying to show uh, in the book still to the twenty first century and you know there's still some blurring of these of these genres, excuse me, a blurring of the you know positions of of high and low. But I think that the beginning of the century is a particularly fluid moment since everything is kind of coming together. And I see that moment as being one where, it is where authors are trying to stake out a claim for themselves, but where they might be involved in, in both sides of the argument, high and low. And I, I guess if they were honest, most of the authors who aspire to be, to aspire to be high also want to sell, don't they? There's, there, there, aren't, there aren't many authors who say they don't, well, who, who say it and mean it, that they don't care how many copies they sell. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. And, I, was, and, I, I was surprised. Oh, go ahead. I was surprised by how, how low some of the print runs were. As you, I think you say Balzac's print runs were in the sort of low hundreds or maybe 1500 and people like um, Musset, just a few hundred. Yes. Well, you know, looking into some of these of these figures, I thought was fascinating because I think, you know, this was one of the ways in which using the, the sort of book historians that I rely on a lot throughout the century really helped me reimagine what the, what the you know, literary landscape was in the 19th century. And some of these authors that we, you know, that we look at today, Stendhal, Musset, authors where, you know, they, they to us now represent the 19th century, but, you know, they were not among the most read authors of the time period. And I think that to really understand the tastes of the 19th century rather than read these sort of more elite authors who are positioning themselves for a uh, you know, specifically well-educated upper-class audience, it's fascinating to read, um, to read the authors that were actually the most read. Um, someone like de Kock is not, you know, Eugène Sue is, of course, and, um, and, and other authors, for example, authors I don't study in depth in the book, like, for example, for example Alexandre Dumas, are having much larger print runs. Someone like um, de Kock is having smaller print runs, 
3,000, 5,000 at most, um, but they're consistent. And so that certainly is much a much higher um, you know, print run than, than some of the authors we think of as you know, classic 19th century authors. I was talking to Anne O'Neill Henry about her book, Mastering the Marketplace, Popular Literature in 19th Century France. It's published by the University of Nebraska Press. You can find out more about it on their website. If you've enjoyed this programme, do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for other interviews in the series. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and, if you feel so inclined, even leave a review. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.